Hello and welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for November 29th, 2017. Hope everyone had a good holiday. I went to Barcelona with my family. I saw less soccer than I expected. Um, not that I had tickets for anything and I didn't do what really appeared to be sort of the overpriced uh, Camp New experience tour where you just go see the stadium. There's so much to see in Barcelona besides that. Um, I really didn't need to see the stadium. Um, what surprised me, uh, and I, I guess I sort of knew this in the abstract, was that you don't really get many opportunities to see um, to see soccer on TV in Spain. It It's really staggering when you think about it. In the U.S., um, we complain when any league game is behind is behind a paywall or something you can't get to, and we can we're I know Jonathan Tannenwald who compiles all things TV is always um, saying you know don't shoot the messenger when he says that you know a Liverpool game is going to be behind a paywall or something like that. I didn't see anything on basic TV in Spain. You know I flipped around looking for Premier League games when they came on didn't see them. Uh, La Liga games I didn't see. Uh, we did find one place, I guess you'd call it kind of a sports bar, where they had a game on. I saw uh, Real Betis and uh, Girona uh, play a really thrilling game. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And I didn't really see that much of a soccer presence around the city, but I, I guess to some extent I was expect, probably expecting too much. I have it blown up in my head that in a city like Barcelona, everyone is playing street soccer. Uh, I didn't see that. I think maybe the neighborhood I was in, you know, there are too many shops and so forth. And so I think that the shopkeepers probably don't want people setting up a full-fledged soccer game right in front of their stores. I I did see, actually there were a couple of youth games going on uh, as I walked around Saturday, and that looked very much like U.S. youth soccer. Also, there was a street soccer tournament uh, going on. I mean, not literally street soccer, but it, it reminded me of an event in Philadelphia that was set up by a street soccer organization. And it was a 3v3 tournament. They had all these t-shirts there, and I watched about two minutes of a game. And, you know, it was, it was fun to see kids who looked like they were about seven or eight and um, had some some decent foot skills. And you know, one nice thing about that is you, you see them cheer when teammates score goals. And that sounds like such a simple thing. But I feel like we've gotten so individual focused where youth soccer is nothing more than a factory to produce players. And I don't like that. That seems just running contrary to what we're supposed to get out of sports, all the good things we're supposed to get out of it, uh, like teamwork and camaraderie and so forth. And you see it on these innocent, you know, seven and eight year olds. I have no idea what level they are, if any of them are ever going to get picked up uh, at a professional academy or not. Um, I heard loud cheers in a neighborhood that had a youth soccer game going on at a school. We were walking kind of up the mountain in Barcelona, and there weren't many flat surfaces. <laughs> in fact, I'd say there were only two flat surfaces, and there was a soccer game in progress on each of them. Uh, one of them was a futsal game with uh, some adults. I watched them play a little bit because you could see them as you're walking down the hill, and then there was a youth soccer game in progress at a school. And it was 
I don't know what exactly I was expecting, but I didn't see a huge soccer presence. Of course, in Barcelona right now, it's, uh, as Bob Dylan uh, saying, there was music in the cafes at night and revolution in the air. Uh, the referendum on Catalonian independence uh, is hard to avoid. Uh, a lot of the balconies have signs with uh, Catalan flags or the the word C uh, for a yes vote for the referendum. Uh, it, out, actually, outside our neighborhood, I saw the occasional Spanish flag and maybe even the occasional no, but a lot of C out there and a lot of politically oriented graffiti, at least I think it was politically oriented graffiti. I don't speak much Spanish. I certainly don't speak any Catalan. I, Catalan uh, it boggles my mind. I mean, when I started seeing all the signs that were in both Catalan and Spanish, it just, I wasn't, it's hard to tell which is which because they're so similar. It's almost as like Catalan is slightly misspelled or mispronounced Spanish. I'm sure linguistically, I don't know which came first. I don't know how they evolved, but it, it's rather strange. And um, my son, who has been studying Spanish, was a little disappointed he didn't get to use any of it or read the signs. But it was a beautiful trip. Highly recommend going. If you can also get in and see some sports in Barcelona, that's great. I did see Barca TV a bit, which was showing futsal games. And actually, if I'd known about that, maybe I would have gone to that. It was the UEFA Futsal Cup. And they were entertaining games. Uh, it looked like only a couple hundred people were there. So that might have been fun. But in any case, soccer wasn't really a big part of this trip. But Barcelona is a beautiful place. Uh, also went to Tarragona, just a little ways uh, down the coastline uh, from Barcelona, right there on the Mediterranean. Uh, just just incredible uh, seeing so many centuries of, of things colliding at once. I mean, you see signs for Black Friday sales. And yes, literally, Black Friday in English. Uh, even though they don't celebrate Thanksgiving, so it's not the day after Thanksgiving, but it's Black Friday. And they had signs for that sitting in front of Roman ruins that are 2,000 years old. Just staggering. Uh, great trip. Glad to be back, though, and trying to catch up on everything that's going on in soccer. And this week, we have a very long interview. In fact, there's not going to be uh, a closing segment today. I, we're just going to go through the interview because I talked with Neil Morris, who is known to us as a journalist, but in his day job uh, is a lawyer and mediator. I hope I have that right. Um, a lawyer who does mediation. Anyway, he is experienced in mediation. He is fully qualified in the law. He is one of the people who uh, dissects all the legal documents that come out in things like the NASL USSF lawsuit. So we tried a little experiment in which he would serve as the mediator and I would present each side of the U.S. soccer NASL suit. It didn't go quite as I expected. It was very different. The mediation process might be a little different than you expected. So it was, it was educational from that point of view, but also it was interesting to see what that process forces us to think about. And so we came up with some ideas that might propel things forward. Then we came up with some reasons why none of this can be solved, ever. I'm not kidding. I'm not sure we can ever solve this. I'm not sure. I'm not sure U.S. pro soccer can ever be legal. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, unless you get everyone who is currently involved and anyone who could potentially be involved in the future 
to all get in one room and agree to a structure that they can live with and agree not to sue each other. I don't think this is the last lawsuit in U.S. pro soccer, unfortunately. But, hey, it gives us something interesting to talk about. Um, and we can envision new directions to go, maybe get partway toward a solution. And so I hope we got partway toward a solution in this conversation. Uh, here it is, me and Neil Morris. Neil Morris, and I, I am I envy Neil Morris for a number of things. One is that he lives in North Carolina, which is one of my favorite areas of the world. Uh, another is that he has a good, productive day job on top of being a journalist, uh, which is a sounder and sounder uh, career path to do these days, as we've seen this week, unfortunately. The other thing is, even though I grew up in Athens, Georgia, I have this sort of nasally uh, geographically, uh, geographically nondescript voice, and Neil has this very mellifluous southern drawl that I, I wish I had. And even my wife sometimes tells me, "You're from Georgia. Why, do you, why don't you have that sort of, you know, that distinctive uh, southern voice?" Uh, I don't. So, uh, Neil, thank you for lending your voice uh, to this podcast today. You also envy the fact that I attended and graduated undergrad from the proper state university in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Ah, uh, yes, the uh, University of uh, yes, that that place that um, <laughs> that you know that that place that used to be good at women's soccer. No, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, should say, I should I shouldn't say that considering North Carolina is the only team that has beaten Duke this year, even though North Carolina is out of the tournament. Um, and Duke is in the Final Four, or the College Cup, as they call it. Uh, Carolina won the ACC. They they beat Duke twice, so uh, congratulations to them. And uh, and seriously, congratulations. Anthony Dorrance is one of the great people in soccer, um, and always always a fun conversation. And um, yeah, actually, I found as I've moved up, uh, moved away from the area, that I like both Duke and North Carolina. It's when other schools, like for a while, it was Maryland trying to horn into the conversation. <laughs> that it gets That's silly. exactly right. Um, so we're going to talk today about the North American Soccer League. North American, that would be NASL 2.0 or 2.5 or 2.whatever, maybe even 3.0 at this point. And uh, the league that has been playing at the Division II level for the last, well, throughout the 2010s uh, would be the best way to put it. And we're going to go into a sort of fantasy world in a little bit and try to mediate uh, this, this dispute. But first, let's talk about the real world. Now, the quick summation, as I understand it, and I was out for a few days, and so I, I'm still catching up a little bit, um, but the NASL sought a preliminary injunction to keep playing at the Division II level. Uh, that there was That was dismissed. Now, or, or that was denied uh, by a judge in New York. Uh, the NASL has appealed, and meanwhile, both parties have agreed that the U.S. U.S. Soccer's motion to dismiss the legal action entirely has been stayed, pending the Second Circuit's decision on the NASL's appeal. And just yesterday, uh, the court 
to my surprise, I, I guess, granted uh, an extension of the NASL's reply uh, to November 30th, so that the next document we should, we're expecting is November 30th, and December 15th is when we're expecting a hearing. Does that all sound correct to you? I think you, you've hit the high points, yes. All right, so that's the real world. Now, what we're going to do now is call upon Neil's day job, uh, which is as a mediator. And so, Neil is going, I'm going to play the role of the NASL and U.S. soccer. Maybe at some point I'll have someone storm the courtroom and start yelling at something else. Um, Neil will act within reason as a mediator. Can you describe what that role is and how how you approach cases and and, and so forth? Well, it's, I'll save you and the, the listeners my full spiel that I give at the start of any mediation as far as the, the process and the role and everything else. But um, the first thing that I say at the start of any mediation that I hold, and, and I've got uh, three more this week after today, is that it's a fancy word for settlement conference. Uh, mediation is not a trial. It's not a hearing. It's not an arbitration, which is the way some people envision it, which is kind of an informal hearing where somebody makes a decision or at least a, a recommendation on what people should do. Uh, mediation is, is truly a settlement conference where there is a, a neutral third party called the mediator who acts as a conduit or a go-between between the two sides in an effort to prompt conversation, settlement offers, and hopefully help broker a, a deal. Uh, the mediator is not there to tell people what to do. The mediator is not there to offer opinions unless uh, asked uh, either directly or sometimes indirectly. And that, that gets into the art of the mediation and also litigation that I won't bore you with. Um, but the mediator also, one of the, one of the big roles is to poke and prod, as I like to call it. Uh, meaning, you know, typically in a, in a formal mediation, Everybody's on site, and one side's in one room, and one side's in another, and the mediator kind of shuttles back and forth, uh, carrying both information and, and, and settlement offers. Uh, but what the mediator does in each room is not necessarily advocate for the other side, uh, but act as a voice for the other side, uh, not, not in an adversarial way, but to try to make each side look at the case or look at a particular issue from the eyes of the other party. Uh, and, and the extent to which the parties can sort of step outside of their advocacy uh, and assess the pros and the cons of not just their case, but also each issue uh, with, an, uh, with a motivation to settle, uh, that is when resolutions come about. Uh, the, the, one of the one of the truisms in mediation is that both sides have to have at least a desire on some level to to settle. Now, uh, there's pros and cons on each side, and sometimes they weigh more on one side than the other, and, and you have to hope the parties, the, the particular parties, will appreciate that uh, and appreciate their particular position, uh, both procedurally and, and factually. But uh, if, if one side, for whatever reason, has no incentive to, to resolve the case, you know, the mediator's not going to be able to make magic happen. But there's usually reasons that people want to get cases done. And, and I'm sure some of those may, may pop up as we go along today. But that, that is the role of the mediator. And so as we go along today, 
you know, what the listener should keep in mind is that, you know, unlike some podcasts I go on where I give my, my opinion or my assessment from a personal point of view, uh, what we will be doing is we, is we kind of shift back and forth between sides is I will, I will be trying, uh, to, to offer perspectives as I would do it, uh, inside the mediation room. So I may be talking outside, out of both sides of my mouth at one point, but there's going to be elements of truth uh for for the particular party that I'm talking to as as we go through I think people will understand as they, as we as we go through this right and the the room to room aspect of it um i i think makes it perhaps a little bit easier for us because um i i i was not aware of this and i had uh, some vision of you trying to keep calm while Jeffrey Kessler is shouting at uh US soccer attorneys or something like that um so i i guess that would not be the case. Now, obviously, in this case, uh, you know the parties very well because uh, you've you've read all the legal documents and you, well, n- normally I'm sure you would be mediating something that you've also covered as a journalist, um, yeah. but, but is it typical that you would have read whatever legal filings have come in and be somewhat familiar with the parties before a mediation starts? Yes and no. If, it, if it's a complicated case or something outside of the norm, uh, the mediation rules encourage the parties to send documents to the mediator ahead of time for him or her to prepare in advance. And that can, that can help. That would definitely be the case in, in a situation like this. Now, your, your run-of-the-mill, as I like to call it, mediation that I do, whether it's an automobile negligence case or a workers' compensation claim, usually I know nothing about the case before I get there. Uh, I know the, the subject matter, whether it's a car wreck or, or workers' comp or something else. Um, but th- those are variations on a theme such that, you know, there's not a whole lot that I need to know in advance. A case like this, uh, th- it would help, and it would probably be the case that the mediator would have uh, some, would be briefed in advance. And sometimes what, what the parties will do was is email the pleadings, uh, or even confidential communications to the mediator sort of outlining their point of view. Uh, and the, and the mediator, there, there is a, a, a rule of confidentiality that applies to the mediator that it varies from state to state, but in essence, uh, the mediator can't share information with one side that's given by the other, the, the other side unless he has permission to do it. Now, there's, there's ways that that is handled on a practical basis during mediation, but the parties are able to communicate with the mediator confidentially both during and advance, and frankly, after the mediation if need be, um, and, and can can bind the mediator to not communicate certain things to the other side if, if they want to. All right, so... When I start pretending to be each side in this, I certainly don't need to go all the way back to the beginning and, and brief you on the history of the NASL and so forth. No, um, we're, we're, we're well aware. We're well past that. Right. So which side would get to go first? Uh, typically, I will – well, it varies from mediation to mediation. Uh, I think it might be just for the sake of, of efficiency on this one. Let's just start with the plaintiff, which is the side with the burden of proof. In this case, that'd be the NASL. Okay. So, I am either Jeffrey Kessler or perhaps Rocco Camiso came in himself. Uh, or actually, would it be would it always be a lawyer who's speaking to you, or would it be a group of 
Um, Both. Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. the attorneys end up doing most of the talking just because that's more efficient from a communication point of view. But sometimes you have parties that lay back in during, during the, 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 the private caucuses, as we call it, and don't say much. And sometimes you have parties that are rather verbose and like to talk a lot. And I suppose if Rocco Camiso was in this mediation, he would probably fall into the latter camp. Hmm. Right. Okay, so from the NASL room, uh, I will tell you that, look, we any further delay of this is going to kill us. We we need to be a Division II league. We have the um, We have enough clubs. To, to meet the criteria, not that we think the criteria are valid in the first place, uh, but we need to be D2 next, next season or we simply don't exist. I guess that's where the NASL would start. Right. I guess with, with, before I get into the, the weeds of, of the particulars of, of, of your legal position, which you know, you know, that mediation it certainly helps to discuss the, the, the party's particular legal standing uh, and and posture, and we'll we'll certainly get into that. But let's. I'd rather start more broadly before we before we get into that. What is it? What is it that the NESL is looking for from a comprehensive settlement point of view? What are the the, the particulars uh, that the league would like to propose? Uh, to U.S. soccer in order to resolve this settlement, keeping in mind one thing, um, you know, without having had much conversation with with the other side, uh, I am going to presume, as is the case in almost every settlement, that any any comprehensive settlement that that we arrive at is probably going to involve an overall dismissal of the lawsuit uh, with prejudice, meaning not able to bring it back on this particular subject matter. In other words, not able to sue U.S. soccer again uh, from an antitrust point of, point of view based on the current construct or the current process that U.S. soccer uses for sanctioning professional leagues. I am presuming, and I think I'm right about this, that U.S. soccer is going to want an overall uh, dismissal of this claim with prejudice. So with that in mind, uh, what are the, the particulars uh, of a, uh, that, that the NESL would want to see uh, and want to arrive at in order to arrive at that resolution? That includes an overall dismissal with prejudice. Okay, so if I'm the NASL and I say, no, I'm not going to agree that uh, to a dismissal with prejudice, um, have, would we already hit a brick wall? Well, that's a, a, a difficult uh, position to begin with because here is the problem. <clears throat> it, if you try to arrive at a settlement that does not involve dismissing this, this claim with prejudice, then U.S. soccer essentially will say, rightly so, that they have not uh, they have gained nothing by trying to arrive at a settlement. Uh, th- that if they open themselves up to, I mean, and again, it, without sort of projecting this claim, without projecting other cases onto this one, because every case is unique, th- there's almost no settlement in the, in the legal setting that does not 
involve as far as dismissing of a lawsuit that does not involve dismissing it with prejudice because frankly the the side that has been sued um materially gains nothing if they concede if they if they concede something or agree to concessions but leave themselves totally open to being sued for the same subject matter again uh and i'm sure mr kessler understands this this <laughs> this more than anyone so you know, I would I would encourage uh, the, the parties to, to discuss this particular uh, aspect with Mr. Kessler before you dig in your heels on this one aspect, because you know, without discussing it much with U.S. Soccer, I would assume that a, 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 a quote unquote settlement that does not involve a dismissal with prejudice is a non-starter. Okay, so Kessler talks with the rest of the people in the room, and they agree. All right. We're going to have to agree then that uh, a settlement would include a dismissal with prejudice. Now, in exchange, uh, what we want would be uh, three years, one of two things. And I say one of two things because the NASL, and I believe the court actually called them out on this, the NASL sort of goes back and forth uh, on on what it really wants, which is, uh, but I'll, I'll say one of two things. So I'll give U.S. Soccer two options if that's okay. And one is give us a three-year exemption where we play as a Division II league, um, as long as we have at least eight teams. That's option A. Option B, do away with the divisional designations, uh, period. You're either professional league or you're not, and then we will be a professional league. So will MLS. So will USL. Uh, so will Peter Wilt's league if it starts. And that's it. There's no division one, division two, just that. So option A, we're division two for three years, for at least three years, as long as we have at least eight teams. Option B, no divisions, just cause professional league. Okay. Is that the full sum of what you are proposing, or are there other uh, particulars that you would like to to offer up now? Because the the the, the one thing that I would remind the parties uh, at mediation uh, is that nothing will send a mediation into a tailspin is, is more than making an offer and then adding to your offer later. Start with whatever you want. And then if that needs to be negotiated uh, either down or uh, sideways or, or whatever, we can do that. What I don't want to do is go to the other side with an offer, then they accept one, which would be miraculous. <laughs> uh, right. And then the other side says, oh, by the way, we want this too. Let's start with everything that you're looking for. I may discuss some of those particulars with you uh, and have maybe help you think about it in, in a different way. Um but I want to make sure that we cover everything at, at, at the outset uh, instead of sending things sideways later. Okay. Um, thank you for the reminder. Uh, we will also insist that Steve Malik, who is no longer an NASL owner, be removed from his position as a pro council representative to the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors, and we will replace him with Rocco Camiso. As a board member, we want Rocco Camiso to have access to all of the details of the business deal between U.S. Soccer 
and Soccer United Marketing. Okay. So that is our only additional uh, demand. So it's so our demands are Rocco on the board with access to the sum books, and then either D2 for three years or no divisional designations. Okay. Uh, let me just ask about one other aspect. I know you didn't say it, and I don't want to try to throw monkey wrenches into this with, with, when you haven't brought it up, so feel free to just say that it's not a problem. You know, in reviewing the pleadings and the, and the court arguments thus far, there was a lot of talk about the professional league standards by, by pro soccer. Uh, I'm sorry, but that were promulgated by U.S. soccer. Uh, it, it appears that the NASL, although you did offer no divisional designations as an alternate resolution, uh, it appears, looking at the pleadings and the, and the court arguments, that there was far more time uh, and effort spent on the standards themselves uh, and, and their application. Now, again, I'm not saying that U.S. soccer or the defendants would be willing to to do anything in this regard, but uh, is there anything about the standards themselves uh, that you would like to propose? Uh, because once I go to the other room, you know, they're not going to – I don't want to go back later and say, oh, by the way, they want this too. Okay, thank you again for the reminder. And what we will do is we will say this. The uh, pro league standards we would like to see frozen at their 2014 – the, the 2014 pro league standards will remain in place at least until 2026 with one exception – and that is that the time zone designation, the um, insistence on having a team in each of three time zones, is fully removed. Okay. All right. So I think we have is yeah. yeah. Uh, so here's what I have. Okay. Um, a proposal. The 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 first prong is, is an alternative uh, offer or demand. Three years of D2 designation with a minimum requirement of eight teams in the NASL, or a total removal of de divisional designation throughout the U.S. soccer pyramid. Um, the second prong being the Steve Malik uh, being removed uh, as the Pro Council's representative on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors, and and I suppose he'd be removed from the Pro Council, too, because you want Rocco Camiso in there, and he's not currently on the Pro Council. Am I right about that? You know that? I'm not sure, because the uh, the, the Pro Council membership, it, it, it seems to exist only in rumor. Um, right. So I guess Rocco would have to be on there. Um, I, we would not demand that Steve Malley be totally removed. Uh, from the Pro Council. I mean, it, it, I'm not sure who else is on the Pro Council from the NASL, but um, okay. if if it means that the owner of Indy 11 has, um, is, just rotates out. I mean, the, the, the members do rotate, usually, except for Don Garber, who seems to be there in perpetuity. Um, so, yeah, that... Leaving Malik on the Pro Council itself would not be an issue. We simply want him off the board. And the Pro Council, for, we should probably restate for listeners, the Pro Council has two 
uh, slots on the U.S. soccer board, as does the youth council, as does the adult council. John Garber has occupied one of those positions since 1999, I believe, uh, certainly at least since maybe 2002 or so. And, um, yeah, we want, we simply want that other slot, uh, instead of being Steve Malik as it is currently, uh, to go to, uh, Rocco Camisa. You want um, Rocco Camisa on the Pro Council and you want him to be the second Pro Council representative on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors. Correct. And you want him to have full access to any financial arrangements between MLS and some? Right. And U.S. soccer, I suppose. Yes. Um, all right, I'll get back to that. And then the last prong, or the third condition, is that you want the Pro League standards frozen at their their current uh, standards, which were the 2014 standards. You want that frozen until the year 2020, through the year 2026. Correct. And with the exception that the time zone standard as currently constituted, which says that uh, any D2 league uh, must have teams in the eastern, central, and western time zones by the sixth year of existence, you want that time zone requirement totally done away with? Correct. Okay. Um, okay. Very well. All right. I, I may have more follow up on this, but let me let's in in the interest of moving it along, let me go ahead and take this over to US Soccer. We'll get their re, their response. Hopefully they'll have one. And then I'll come back and then we'll we'll discuss these in more particulars once we kind of know what their position is. Okay? Okay. All right. So what would happen next is I would go over to US Soccer and Okay, Probably. and you would and, and I would sum up I would, what you've already summed up, yeah. Yeah, and I would give yeah. them sort of this outline that you, that the NASL what they want, uh, but I'd also kind of want to know the same thing I wanted to know from the NASL, which is what is U.S. Soccer's interest here? Um, what is the, the what is the outcome that you're that you are looking at uh, wanting to achieve from this mediation? Okay, U.S. soccer's interest here is the stability and credibility of professional soccer in the United States. And the professional league standards were put in place for a reason, and the previous management of NASL uh, agreed with that. And for a while, the NASL seemed to be making progress toward uh, toward meeting all the all those standards. Back for a while, they did meet all those standards. Um, they have. But those standards include uh, criteria for growth. You're supposed to grow to a certain number of teams by a certain year, and the NASL has gone backwards on that. Uh, and so we think that to maintain credibility, we cannot give the NASL uh, Division II status because it is simply not close to meeting the criteria. Okay. Um, now, and, and thus far, the court process has sort of borne out that that initial position. Um, the, the, the few things that I would add, uh, in, that I would ask U.S. Soccer to at least consider in, in trying to arrive at a, at a resolution here. You know, one thing that the NESL has been reminded, and and I certainly have, and will remind them today, is that the you know the calendar is is working against them in a way. 
Um, the time is running short to figure out exactly what the league is going to to do for the for the 2018 season to figure out uh, how and when it, it can be a sanctioned league for next year. And again, that the, with, with the current appeal of the preliminary injunction scheduled for the middle of December, with a decision not until you know, late December to early January, the calendar starts working against them. What I would also remind U.S. Soccer is that if there's an interest in resolving this this lawsuit in a comprehensive way, meaning to totally get rid of it, and the good news is that I have at least an initial proposal that accomplishes that, that this is the time to explore that as well, because in a way, if you have an interest in resolving this lawsuit sooner rather than later, and certainly short of the the invasiveness and uncertainty of, of, of litigation, uh, that the calendar run, is, is working against you in that regard, because this is this is what I mean by that. R- right now, the NASL has an incentive to resolve, meaning that they want some form of sanctioning for next year, preferably at Division Two level. Uh, at the same time, if, if this process is pushed beyond a, a point of no return, meaning they have virtually no teams left, they have no time to play next year, and, and it runs out for them to be a sanctioned league for 2018 because this litigation process has pushed us past that barrier. Well, then they have no incentive to resolve it either. They, only, the only thing they, that the other side has left is to keep plowing ahead with this litigation, which I would uh, assume the U.S. soccer would rather not have to deal with. Uh, against the backdrop of everything else that's going on, not the least of which is uh, a presidential uh, election that's coming up in in February. Uh, Or just having to open up your books to people that you don't want to have see them. So, in other words, if if you put, you know, the the NESL is at a point of where they might have to consider things they may not necessarily want or or maybe not. But, But U.S. soccer, I think, has to recognize when is the, the right time to do this. And if it's pushed beyond a certain point, you leave, the plaintiff is left with no options as well because what do they have to lose or gain uh, by resolving the lawsuit if it's going to result, if the reality on the ground is that they have no place to play for 2018. So that, that's sort of my, my opening sort of overview regarding the timing of this. Yes. The calendar is working against the NESL, but if U.S. soccer has an interest in an overall comprehensive resolution, it seems to me that now is the time for that. Uh, because if it's pushed far beyond January or February, you, you're, you're going to back them into a corner, and then you're going to be left with no option to just keep plowing ahead. You, you may believe that you have a valid case on a motion to dismiss, but I, your attorneys will certainly tell you, that as difficult as a preliminary injunction may be get for maybe to to obtain by the plaintiff, a motion to dismiss is equally difficult for a, for the defense to to win, especially at the outset of lawsuit before there's been a proper course of discovery. Uh, essentially, what a motion to dismiss would be at this, other than just a, a, a motion on the pleadings or, or or failure to state a claim, which I think sort of the dicta from the, from Judge Brody during the preliminary injunction uh, suggests that there's not a lack of, there's not a failure to state a claim for relief. Um, essentially, what this would be is a motion for summary judgment, meaning is there a la- is there a, a, is there no genuine issue of material fact that would keep 
the, the claiming party or the moving party from winning as a matter of law. Even it, although you you won the preliminary injunction level, I don't think there's been enough discovery that a judge may say that the, as far as summary judgment is concerned, we're going to throw the whole lawsuit out. Uh, I may be wrong. Uh, but that seems to be an equally high odd situation uh equivalent to to the n e s l hoping to to win their preliminary injunction so having said all of that, <laughs> that that's just the table setter that i wanted to 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 lay out before you guys give me a response to what the n e s l s offer is and the good news is I do have an offer it's an initial offer. And in mediations, it's not where you begin, it's where you end. So I would just remind you of that as well. Um, there's three prongs to their to their offer or their demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, prong one has, has alternatives. Uh, number one, they would like three years uh, of sanctioning a, as a Division II pro league uh, contingent on them maintaining eight teams in their league. Alternatively, they would like for the divisional designation structure to be totally abandoned, and which would require, I suppose, uh, well, I, I guess you guys could just say that any league can compete, I guess. I mean, there wasn't an alternative regarding whether there would be minimal, minimal baseline standards for any league to be sanctioned, uh, whether as a, as a participant league under U.S. soccer or FIFA. We didn't get that far, but that's the second alternative: is that the divisional uh, designation or the divisional tiers be uh, abolished outright? All right. Can I respond point by point? Uh, let, let me get through all three, and then I'd okay. rather, because it, because your response to one may be affected by by by, by the others. <laughs> okay. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I think one and three are well related. Yeah, the, that's what I was going to get to. The third one is the professional pro league standards. They would like the professional league standards frozen at their current construct or their current uh, configuration, which is a 2014 standard, through the 2026 season, with the exception that they want the time zone standard uh, removed altogether. And then number three, they want Steve Malik removed from the uh, – removed as the pro council's representative on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors and in his place, uh, they would like Rocco Camiso as not only a member of the board, pro council, but as the one of the two representatives on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors, uh, with him being able to have access to any and all financial arrangements or, or particulars involving the relationship between U.S. Soccer, MLS, and some. Those are the okay. three. All right. So... Bearing in mind all your admonition and the fact that uh, it is somewhat in our interest to to get this settled, um, discovery processes are never fun. Um, even if you're not hiding something really huge, I mean, there, I know there are people who seem to think that U.S. soccer wants to settle at all costs because they're, I don't know, hiding Jimmy Hoffa's body under the Red Bull Arena or something, but. Um, we are going to be somewhat conciliatory here, um, at least on two of those points. On one of those points, we absolutely cannot remove Steve Malik from his term, you know, from his position as the pro council representative on the board. It is bad governance 
to start kicking people around on the board. The board has its own processes for selecting its own members, and that is up for the pro council to decide. Uh, it is not up to anyone in this room, and we'll say it's U.S. soccer lawyers and Sunil Gulati and uh, perhaps Dan Flynn, um, maybe even Carlos Cordero, if uh, they don't mind having him there, um, and and so forth. And uh, we cannot turn around to the board at whose behest we serve and demand that they make changes. That is not how uh, nonprofit organizations or any organization works. So that one to us is a non-starter. Now, the other two, um, we will remove the distinction between Division Two and Division Three. So there will be Division One League and Professional League, two tiers of standards, not three. Uh, so that will eliminate the Division Two standard. And so you will only be responsible for meeting the Professional League standards. Uh, which are the de facto Division Three at this time, um, but that's it. So that will um, that will also remove the time zone standard. Uh, we will freeze the professional league standards. Wait a minute, but wait a not I'm sorry. Before I'm sorry. Before you go past that, mm -hmm. how yeah. will that remove the time zone standard? Uh, the professional league standards, or essentially the Division Three professional league standards, uh, do not have the time zone standard. As I recall, so essentially you will have the, the current D1 Pro League standards, and then everything on the men's side below that or outside of that will be the D the current D3 standards. Correct. Okay. So U.S. In, in conjunction so, with in, in conjunction with the the overall normal Pro League guidelines, the overarching ones. Right, yeah, because as I recall, there's not specifically Division three standards. It's basically professional league, and then on top of that, if you want to be D2, you meet this. On top of that, right. if you want to be D1, you meet this. Uh, we're going to take out the D2 standards, and as I recall, the time zones only come into effect in D2. So, okay. um, so what that means is you would not be Division uh, or we wouldn't. You would not be a division ahead of USL, nor a division behind them. You would be the same division as USL. Um, you would have to meet. So, you would have to meet the overall pro league guidelines, plus the baseline guidelines for what is currently D three. D three. Yeah. Right. Right. So the the, the D two standards are pro league to be a men's pro league outside of D one. Right. Okay. So the the D2 standards are just completely removed from the books. Uh, and we're content to freeze that, but only until 2020, not until 2026. You're going to freeze what? The professional lead standards. Uh, which All would, of them? Or, uh, well, excluding the Division II standards, which would be taken out. So we would have right. the, so the current Division, the 2014 Division I standards would apply to Division I, and the current Professional league standards would apply to NASL, USL, and any other future league. And there would be no other divisional assignment within that. Okay. So now we want to add two 
prawns of our own that are related. Um, want you to open merger talks with NISA, the league that Peter Wilt is proposing and has come to us with. And as part of that, we believe the NASL brand name to be toxic. We want the NASL brand name to disappear. We're not asking for any staff to be fired, not asking for any clubs to disappear. We are simply asking that whether you're able to pull off a merger with Peter Wilkes League or not, you cease using the NASL brand. We believe a rebrand is in everyone's best interest to move us past everything we detailed in the documents from uh, from the kind of murky start that the NASL had to um, to the situations with traffic sports uh, to the current legal action to all the teams that have been shed in recent years. Now, is that a, are you referring to that in regards to the league brand or the individual club brands as well? The league brand. The individual club brands can all stay. ND11, New York Cosmos, uh, San Francisco Deltas, if they're able to be revived. Um, who else is left? <laughs> um, right. uh, Miami, Miami, Puerto Rico. Miami. Two expansions, Indy 11, Cosmos, right. Right. And if you're able to get the new California teams online, fine. Um, so there you have it. And you want a dismissal with prejudice of the current club. And, and of course, dismissal with prejudice. Okay. Let me let me sort of offer my thoughts, if you don't mind, on this to see if you, a little bit of food for thought before I take this to the other room. Okay. Um, on prong one, uh, I, I hear you. What you have proposed, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to just essentially merge the D2 and D3 divisions into a single non-D1 or just pro-league uh, designation. Uh, whose standards are the overarching pro league guidelines that apply to all leagues, plus the current D3 standards as a, as a baseline. Is that correct? Correct. Because, uh, and honestly, the D2 standards are, it, it may be difficult for any league to meet that. Right. Well, yeah. let me, let me, let me sort of hash that out a little bit. And, and also the second, the, the other part of that particular prong is that you would fru- freeze the pro league standards, uh, the, the newly, uh, constructed pro league standards until 2020. And, Correct. And this, and this realignment of standards would by operation, uh, remove the, the time zone requirement. Um, let me ask you to at least consider one other thing. And again, the, the NESL may, the plaintiff may like this this proposal that you've offered. Um, since they made an alternative argument, uh, I would at least add, like for you to entertain. And again, you don't have to do this, but I would ask you to at least entertain a counter offer on the other alternative, which is D two sanctioning for a set amount of time. Um, it's because they the, the plaintiffs may want D2 designation for some reason. Uh, and, again, it may be difficult for them to meet it, but that's a cross that they'll have to bear, although, I, again, it'll be an issue that will come up again at some point. Uh, they were wanting three years at D2 sanctioning with, with contingent on eight teams. 
would you like to make an alternative uh, offer on that aspect? Okay, we'll make an alternative offer of three years of Division II designation with a minimum of 12 independently owned teams. And we will verify independently owned because what we have seen both in the pleadings and in the media, is the suggestion that several NPSL teams that operate on an amateur schedule for a couple of months a year will be brought up into the NASL, um, not financed on their own. Okay. And we, uh, if there is a club, say Detroit, that is ready to make that jump, great. If you're simply going to pump a lot of money, uh, if you're simply going to have an NESL owner bring up its own farm team, well, that sounds to us like the Atlanta Braves saying, uh, we want to bring the Gwinnett Braves into Major League Baseball and we'll keep paying for them. Uh, we're not interested in seeing that. But if you can come up with 12 independently owned teams, then we will give you three, three years of Division II designation. you want to do three or do you want to start out with two? Two. Okay, all right. <laughs> you can do whatever you want, but okay. Let's um, the the other two things, and again, I, I, I'm I'm willing to carry to the other room anything you want me to, and you'll get the response that you get. Um, but the, let me sort of go ahead and address a couple of things that occur to me regarding your other two, your two, your your second and third mm-hmm. uh, uh, all, uh, prongs. The fourth being the dismissal with prejudice, which I understand that. But comes with it. Um, the, the first one, a merger with Nisa. I didn't quite understand what you meant by that. Well, I, I suppose I suppose that that's something that can be forced by a settlement um, because that. Because you're dealing. The, the problem is, no matter how, I guess, no matter what you mean by that, and I'm and I am curious what you mean by that. But again, and that gets into an entity that is not a party to this litigation. And right. this settlement is really always – if you try to impose some settlement involving the NESL that involves the inner workings or, 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 or future process of, of, a, of another private organization, number one, it's not going to be valid. It's going to be void. Mm-hmm. And number two, you're just going to invite another lawsuit. So I don't quite understand that part of it. Can we ask the NASL to send a letter and to copy U.S. Soccer, send a letter to Peter Wilt, who is operating uh, who, or who is organizing the as yet um, as yet unborn uh, in uh, NISA, send a letter proposing merger talks. I will discuss that, but again, making that a binding condition gets really dicey, Mr. Galati, because, uh, again, if they wanted to engage in merger talks, I would think that the NESL would have already gone down that road. There there appears to be, and again, I don't want to speak for them, there appears to be a clear reason why that has not happened. Um, And if it is in the interest of the NESL to do it, I suppose it will. 
I, I am a little I'm a little afraid of trying to hash out or construct a settlement of this lawsuit that involves that. Um, it starts to look like U.S. soccer is either either practically or or not is trying to buttress another league or 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 force the NESL to uh, contort its, its governing structure into another organization that may not be organized the same way. That gets really messy, and I'm not even sure how it, we would do that. Okay, let's um, let's combine then the the two extra prompts I put in, and it, or really scratch the open merger talks with NISA and say, want you to lose the NASL brand name, which you can accomplish by a rebranding or a merger. So that way, a merger is not something we're demanding. It's simply an alternative way of meeting um, of meeting this prong. I will take that to them. I'm I'm still concerned about that, but we'll, okay. we'll find out what they have to say about it. Um, okay. Okay. The other, I was going to discuss issue three at more length, but I think I'll wait until I talk to the NASL about that. Um, okay. Okay. All right. So in that session, I'm going back to the NASL. Okay. Well, how about uh, the the Malik point, the Malik and Camiso point? Um, well, you said it's a non. The U.S. Soccer said it's a non-starter, and I'm going to send that back to. Uh, well, I guess I could just speak. I'll I'll, I'll speak sort of as as, a, as an attorney for a moment regarding that. Right. And, and 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 we can treat this as if I've gone back to the NASL and I'm talking to them about that. Um, Okay. Yeah, U.S. Soccer has said that the the you know I, to save time, I won't relay everything that you just said about what U.S. Soccer is demanding. I've, I've relayed that to to the to the NASL. Okay. Um, so we're in the NASL room, and and I have relayed what the... U.S. Soccer's counter demand was or counter offer was. Okay. Um, and they and the one thing that they said in addition to that is that the the, the provision regarding the removal of Steve Malik from the from the Pro Council. And the installation of Rocco Cabiso on the board of directors is a non-starter because it essentially runs afoul of, of the bylaws of the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors, in addition mm-hmm. to a whole host of other things. The, the one thing that I would add um, in, in talking to, to you, Mr. Kessler and, and Mr. Camisa, and again, this is me talking, this is at U.S. Soccer. Um, a couple of things occurs to me regarding this condition. Number one, you know, I would encourage all parties, both sides, uh, to, to sort of keep in mind the big picture here. Um, I don't want to get, although, you know, small things can become big, uh, and each side has their own, um, their own points of emphasis. Uh, I would not want to get bogged down on an, an, an issue that is, does not achieve the paramount concerns of each side, which in the case of the NFL is the making sure that you guys are up and operational and have some level of security both next year and beyond. Uh, that's what I would hope that we're working toward. Um, the, the other thing that I would, that I would concern about, and, and I don't mind, and this applies to a 
a couple of things. And I had the same conversation in regards to another condition that U.S. Soccer wanted to impose in regards to outside entities. Um, you know, the one the one reason I'm a little concerned about the the Steve Malik issue is that although you know Malik serves on the board of directors and the pro council as a result of being elected by those boards, yeah, I get a little concerned about a a settlement between the NESL and U.S. Soccer that removes him or may work against his personal professional interests. Right, because he's not represented I, here. He's not represented here, and I could certainly, although, you know, I, I don't know what his personal professional interest is by sitting on the board, but a settlement between the NESL and U.S. Soccer that essentially acts to remove one person from the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors regardless of the motives of either party, runs afoul or could involve possible legal consequences by that person should they object. And so, uh, you know, the the, the condition, you know, U.S. Soccer had a condition where they wanted to encourage uh, merger talks with NISA. And I had this same conversation with U.S. Soccer about involving the interest of an outside entity in a settlement between these two parties and how that becomes legally problematic. I've had the same conversation with you, NESL, regarding the disposition or or uh, of Steve Malik in his position on the, on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors as a result of a settlement between these two parties. Um, and I worry that it does not address the big picture, and I would I would want everybody to keep their eye on the on the ball, so to speak. So that that's just my two cents on that. And, right. and and oh by the way, I would also say, although I didn't say this during when you first proposed it, I, I will say it now. Uh, the the desire for having Mr. Camiso on the board of directors, who I'm sure would be a, a a wonderful addition to the board in and of itself. Uh, but any kind of condition where he has unfettered access to, to certain documents that, again, involve outside entities, in this case MLS, um, if there is any restriction uh, in regards to a board member having that access under normal operation or procedures, again, that may be part of the reason why we arrive at a settlement. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it may be that that sort of unfettered access or, or, or open book uh, may be part of the reason that we're that U.S. Soccer is at the table engaging in these settlement talks, um, making that sort of open book access a condition of the settlement, uh, I worry runs the risk of of, of deep sixing this whole thing. So again, that's that's my two cents. Okay, so in our response to this counteroffer. By the way, the, list, the listeners are getting yeah. the, the the inside insight into the scintillating world of mediation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but this is so a, just, this is a very distilled way of how it actually goes. To be quite to be frank about it. Oh, I'm sure this would normally take you know a full day, if not days. Um, yeah. So let's pretend that, um, but. Let's pretend everyone suddenly decided to be reasonable, and uh, so you and I could both get on with our days. <laughs> and uh, so our listeners um, who have listened to this point will be encouraged to uh, – we'll see like a 10 minutes remaining rather than a two hours remaining or something like that. Yeah. Um, let's say as – even if it might be unrealistic, NASL 
agrees to everything with these standards. Uh, the removal of the distinction between D2, D3, uh, the freeze till 2020 is fine. I know in the re- in the real world, maybe they push back 2022. Let's say they agree to 2020. So let's say they agree to those two prongs. And let's even say they agree to rebrand. Um, I have no idea how realistic that is, but, you know, I, I will pretend that... I, uh, I, I would... Yeah, I, I would, again, we're sort of short-circuiting this now. I would anticipate yeah. the NESL would say, heck no on a rebrand. Uh, and I would, if it was, if I was in mediation, I would do my best to push back on U.S. soccer on that. Um, okay. If it's a, if it's a toxic brand, and again, that's their cross to bear. Uh, you know, if, 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 if the league wants to, I understand that U.S. soccer maybe is done with the NESL period, but, you know, if the league, if the club names are going to stay the same, let the, let the league call itself what it wants to. That's sort of my belief on that. Right. And um, also, I, perhaps a more realistic U.S. soccer counter at this point would have been, we're just done with you guys. Move your clubs. To, you know, you know, if Indy 11 wants to go to USL or NISA, we'll support them wholeheartedly, but we're just done with you guys. You know, and yeah. we don't care if you take it to Discovery. Um but, they eventually, they eventually could say that. Um, they might, yeah. Now, on the on the on the alternatives that U.S. Soccer sent back over to the NASL, you know, the, the you know the, the the first one regarding the removal of the D through D two D three standards and just establishing a baseline, it's an intriguing alternative. Um, and I, and I wonder whether the NASL would bite on that. They may not because it may run afoul with their their uh, membership agreements regarding triggers for for withdrawing from the from the LLC, yeah, or 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 the fact that they really really want that D two designation, which may, which by the way does not make them unique. USL apparently does too. Um, that is why I insisted on the second alternative, uh, which I would tell the US, I would tell the NASL that if you don't like the removal of the the D two D three designations and just there would just be one outside non-D1 tier, uh, then there's something to be said for having two years at D2 with 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 a, with a, with a certain number of teams. They said 12 independently owned teams. Right, um, which I think the NASL cannot meet. Certainly no, not and they, may, and they may want to counter with, say, eight. Okay. Um, I, and I and again we're sort of short circuiting this now, but I think it's a good time to do that. Um, yeah, I think at the, this point the, we may be done with sort of the back and forth mediation part. I think it may be time for us to take off the mediator and lawyer hats and put right. on our journalism and, and hats. Why, and see, yeah, you know what's interesting about that three year thing. We've read reports where that's one of the demands of the NESL, and I, I speculated right. on, on Twitter. I wonder whether that just came about because one of the one of the documents that was provided. In, in the court filings at the outset of this lawsuit was an email from Sunil Gulati to Rocco Camiso where he informally posited the possibility of a three-year D2 sanction as something he would take to the board in exchange for getting rid of the lawsuit. And, and I wonder whether that's where this came from, that the NESL saw that and said, oh, yeah, that'd be great to have. And, and now we're sort of stuck between one year and three years. The, the reason why two years seems uh, 
a reasonable alternative. It's not just because it's the number between one and three. <laughs> um, yeah. The reason why it appears to be a reasonable alternative is because it gives the NASL well, several reasons. One, two years gives the NASL D2 sanctioning for next year. And then a, a the, the one thing they haven't had in several years is a non-turbulent off-season going into the second year. So they don't have to worry about this sanctioning saga next off-season. They have a, a full run-up with some level of stability going into year uh, two. Mm-hmm. Um, three years seems like a long time, and I could see why U.S. soccer might push back on that. But I don't see two years as being an unreasonable alternative, even though it's outside of the normal sanctioning process. It would at least give the NASL two years, maybe eight teams all independently owned. That seems to be a reasonable alternative to me. The other thing that it does from the U.S. soccer point of view is even though they may not like extending beyond an annual review, it also enables them to avoid the conundrum of USL for another year because right now their sanctioning is on hold too, and I think I know mm-hmm. why. I think we all know why, uh, because they haven't fully met these guidelines either. U.S. soccer doesn't want to grant them D2 while this lawsuit is, or at least the preliminary stages of it, because it would get thrown in their face. But it's clear they don't want to knock USL down to D3 and uproot everything that they've been trying to accomplish. USL gets D2 for two years. It sort of opens the door for U.S. soccer to treat USL the same, which takes that burden off U.S. soccer. It lends USL more stability for that two-year period, and it kind of kills two birds with one stone, which is why why I think that sort of a two-year window would be in everyone's best interest. Okay, so I think what we've arrived at here are that there are two potential paths to which you and I could at least see some progress. And one would be a two-year a two-year grace period for NASL and USL. Yeah. And the other would be getting partway out of the of making any sort of stage between D2 and D3 at all. Which is an interesting alternative and one I hadn't considered. Um and, and I frankly, you know, if any if this lawsuit has sort of changed my outlook on anything, which they they usually don't, I, I'm almost at a point of just wanting divisional tiers abolished period <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which was which was your one of the NASL original prongs of settlement or conditions of settlement and, and, right. and I've arrived at that just because you know in sort of looking at the the function of US soccer vis-a-vis the other national governing bodies under the the under the Stevens Act or under the US the the, the Olympic Committee you know I mean the other NGBs don't don't regulate pro sports but at the same time you know there aren't sort of these uh, outside of of baseball obviously in the minor league system there aren't these divisional tiers in football or basketball or or hockey necessarily there are minor leagues but i don't think that they're divisional they're they're not d1 d2 they just exist uh, and the market sort of takes care of it and i you know i've sort of arrived at the point to just to avoid all of this potential antitrust entanglement and this constant D2, D3 wrangling, you know, why not just you know have baseline standards for any league under U.S. Soccer's uh, uh, function as, as a as a as a member association of FIFA, 
just sanction them on a baseline level, including MLS, and then just let them go. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know that there was a there was a reason that they they wanted the the D one uh, uh, protection over MLS at the outset uh, of that league, and they've talked. You know, that's been that's an open thing that's been discussed during this preliminary injunction hearing of, of why uh, you know D one uh, protection, if you want to call it that, both sanction and protection, was afforded to MLS at the outset of the league back in '96 and, and beyond. But we may have gone beyond that, um, where it's not necessary. And now we're at the point where it just becomes a boondoggle every year for U.S. soccer to make these D1, D2, D3 designations, and now it's landed them in court. And even if this settlement, if this lawsuit is settled, we may return for one reason or another. And so I've almost arrived at that at the point of just saying, just get rid of the divisional tiers. Now, U.S. soccer may not want to do that. Heck, the NESL may not want to do it because they sort of abandoned that argument a little bit in the preliminary injunction stage. No, they did. So, so well, they kind of did. They didn't really push it that hard, um, right? And so, you know, that that's personally where I'm at. But for the purposes of trying to reach a, a resolution to this, I, I think we go back to what I was saying before. I think if these guys have have made any kind of substantive conversations. You know, two years at D2 with a minimum of eight teams independently owned seems to be a good a good starting point. The devil is always in the details, though, and that's that's always what's going to hang things up. Um, and I know there was a little bit of a little bit of back and forth on social media about oh they want U.S. Soccer or wants the NASL to not be able to sue them again for this. Well, that's sort of standard stuff. I mean, that's, right. <laughs> you know, as, as, I, as I tried to say in a very nice way at the outset of our sort of mock mediation, you know, a, a dismissal with prejudice for the resolution of all claims is kind of what has to happen in, 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 as, as part of a, any settlement of any lawsuit. The defendant gains nothing by giving away concessions and still leaving themselves open to being sued for the very same thing the next time the plaintiff is not happy uh, with with status quo, so yeah, that's that's why so many terms of use. You know, if you if you know the, the things that we normally don't read, you know, and sign on sign on to, but so many of them, if you do read them, they say you agree to arbitration rather than a lawsuit. Um, yeah. I have no idea how many of those are actually. I, I've talked a little bit about this with other lawyers, and they tell me that those things are not necessarily. Um, in fact, that in the in the WPS uh, legal action that Dan Boris Oil brought, by my reading of yeah, if there's a franchise agreement or some other sort of agreement, by my reading of that, there is no way that case should have proceeded in Florida uh, because it spells out. It says if you must take action against us, do so in. The Delaware, I believe, it was the Court of Chancery, um, or in, I believe, New York, and somehow Boris Law's legal team convinced the judge in Florida that no, uh, we don't want to go to Delaware, New York, and we're based in Florida, and this is WPS operation, so you have standing. And the Florida judge agreed, and that was. I think one of the reasons why that case went so far south for WPS so quickly. Yeah. Um, 
By, by the way, so, one other thing. Yeah. By the way, one other thing. You know, it's kind of funny that you and I. I was sort of thinking through possible uh, avenues of settlement before our before this this recording today or before this podcast. And mm-hmm. It's interesting that you and you and I were thinking along similar lines. You know, one one angle where I would think that there should be a bit of leeway from U.S. soccer and maybe wel- a welcomed avenue of, of settlement from the NASL. Is on these professional league standards. Uh, yeah, it, it occurs to both you and I that the time zone requirement is, is not of, of dire necessity. I mean, you you had sort of informally, through your own thought process, contemplated just getting rid of it. Um, I, you know, possibly a, a, another resolution would be changing from Eastern Central Pacific to a minimum of three time zones regardless of where, or maybe even two time zones in the continental United States. I mean, it seems right. to be a way that you can finagle that. And the other avenue is an assurance of freezing these standards at, at, at the 2014s for an appreciable period of time. I think you and I may agree that there's really no overarching reason to change these professional league standards anytime in the near future. And if the NASL can get an assurance on that, uh, and matter of fact, USL would have that same assurance. Then that that would mm-hmm. be, of a, I think, a benefit of trying to resolve this case. I mean, so and yeah, I I'll say my first impression when I saw the I guess the 2010 uh, professional league standards, which was the first time I can recall this stuff being made public. Um, yeah. I don't remember if it being 1995 or 96 or whatever standards. Uh, were made um, were made public until this legal action made them public. Just as we didn't know, we you know we haven't seen the U.S. Women's current collective bargaining agreement. We've only seen the previous ones, and that's bec- that's only because they were uh, court exhibits. Right. Um, but when but when the 2010 standards were were made public, I looked at it and laughed. I thought, who in the world? is going to meet these standards for Division Two. I felt like they were written by somebody who wanted to make it impossible to have a second division. But apparently, the NASL clubs at the time, um, and let's bear in mind, the 2010 NASL bears almost no resemblance to the current NASL. It has very few of the same teams. The teams that do exist, the teams that have carried over, don't have the same owners. Especially the Cosmos, right? Um, and certainly, well, North Carolina is leaving anyway. Uh, but Indy was not one of the original teams. My the current Miami AFC was not one of the original teams. Uh, there's really no, and all the league staff turned over. There's really no, nobody none, left. None of the none of the remaining seven teams in the NESL right now were around during the 2010-2011 season. None of them. The last two were the Carolina Club, which is gone, <coughs> and SC Edmonton, which in the uh, on Black Friday right. that they were they were they were folding. So, or at least yeah. they were they were ceasing their professional operations. Yeah, which is why, and I see your point that it's going to be uh, that the NASL will be unlikely to agree to this. Um, but mm-hmm. I I think they have to ditch the brand name. I don't know. I mean, you know, again, we, again, we don't know the devil of the details. But there's always little things that nobody is aware of that that become right. big things when you start talking settlement or mediation or whatever. 
with, yeah. with that ca- with that caveat, I think in regards to the big stuff, you know, I, I think a two-year window at D2 with a minimum of eight teams and freezing these these PLSs for anywhere from three years or to to six or, or maybe even three to four years, at least beyond the, the grace period. It needs to be at least a year beyond that. Um, mm-hmm. Just just because you don't want while the league is trying to stabilize, they're also worried that a that, a, that an amendment to the PLS may come as soon as their grace period's over. I, I, that seems to be a bit much as well. Sure. Um, that that seems to be a reasonable concession that U.S. Soccer could make, and I, I think, you know, again, I don't want to presuppose, you know, something that's big behind the scenes that we don't know, but, you know, that seems to be the making of, of a resolution that makes sense for all parties, especially considering where the NAFL is from a legal process, a legal posture at this point. Now, again, we don't know what may be going on behind the scenes inside the NAFL boardroom that makes them you know, go forward with what they're doing. You know, a lot of this stuff that we brought up that I, in a very nice way, tried to dispense with are things that probably would be non-starters. You know, anything regarding Steve Malik is not going to go anywhere for, for reasons we discussed. Right. Uh, anything that anything that involves uh, forcing or encouraging a, a NISA merger is not only probably legally undoable, uh, but but as I said during the mediation, if that was going to happen, they probably already would have. I think that there's probably something about Nice's governing structure as opposed to the NESLs that makes these current NESL teams not want to leave. They they're well, members, they they own the NESL, and I although we don't know much about the governing structure of NISA, I find it very hard to believe that it's going to be a, a one member one vote uh, governing structure like the NESL, regardless of whether that's works or not. I have to check with Peter. Um I, I do think you know and Peter did seem to be a fan of the NASL structure at least to an extent. Um yeah it that's it it's a difficult one. Now I I wonder if you removed the D two slash D three designation if they might be more interested in a merger. Uh, it, it Maybe they're not interested in a merger talk right now simply because the, um, they're so intent on being D2. Yeah. Uh, whereas Peter's League, uh, as it currently stands, will be D3. Now, if you took out the, uh, the D2, or if you took out that distinction, maybe it would be easier. By and, the way, let me let me let me throw one other wrinkle in here, and I don't I don't want to sure. go on too much of a rabbit hole, but I I I do like the abolition of the D two D three distinction, but let me just throw one other concern that I would have. Mm-hmm. What would USL's reaction to that be? Oh um, boy. <laughs> meaning meaning they have expended a lot of time and effort and money in not only working toward uh, uh, meeting the D two guidelines. Sure. They have also embarked on an overall vision plan for a D3 league and have made efforts toward a league that that will operate under those current guidelines. If suddenly that whole thing was uprooted, USL could turn around and say, you guys have wasted a lot of our time and money. <laughs> And we are out a we are out a lot of time, effort, and money because of trying to meet these standards that you have now abolished for the sake of a settlement with a rival league. 
that gets legally perilous. So I, that is one little nugget that I would throw. That if, if, if again, U.S. Soccer can probably do anything that they want to do by themselves, but hashing out a settlement with the NESL that that, that sort of runs afoul with the business plan of USL could open up another legal predicament. Right. Yeah, well, that's why these things are so complicated, and it's why, um, you know, a lot of the promotion relegation discussion in, the, in this country is is so unrealistic because so much of it will say, um, exactly. you, you know, well, you know, what would be wrong with, you know, saying to MLS, oh, well, now we have, you know, either you can be relegated or we're going to have another D. I actually wonder um, – I mean, U.S. soccer professes, in fact, there are times in there where in the, the declarations where Gladi says, oh, yes, we would, you know, we hope to get NASL to D1 one day. I really have to doubt whether that's sincere, and I, I don't mean that in a diabolical sense. I just mean that it seems like the sort of thing they have to say, but uh, I, I've never... And there, there are people like Steve Holroyd who will disagree with me on this, and Peter Wilkes will disagree with me on this. Um, I feel like if we had two full-fledged competing top-tier leads in this country, it would be a disaster. And Possibly. I think you have, I mean, the, the, yeah. the history of soccer in the United States certainly suggests that. Um, right. I'll tell you about the, the pro-rel aspect, and again, I don't like to go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's worth mentioning in regards to this NESL lawsuit because if the NESL lawsuit and the, and the sort of the research into the antitrust position of U.S. soccer has, has opened my eyes to anything, it would be the difficulty of implementing promotion and relegation in, in, in under U.S. law, meaning how on earth would U.S. soccer legally be able to erect a system of – be able to mandate, I'm sorry, a system of promotion and relegation? Either they would have to run all leagues, which would run into a major antitrust problem. Sure. Uh, if there's other competitors in the market, which there already are, mainly MLS, USL, even NESL maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, but how does U.S. soccer turn to a private entity and say your league is going to be D3 and you're going to promote and relegate out of that? Your league is going to be dyed in the wool D2. In other words, you can't move. Your league, your private entity is stuck here. Well, that that's restraint on trade. There's no way around it. Uh, the only way it happens is if all the leagues agree to that by contract, which they won't. Um, but I mean, what league is going to say, okay, we'll be the Division Three league? Um, so then it becomes a situation where the association would have to just set up and say, we're establishing these leagues, D1, D2, D3, the clubs can join, they can associate. But then how does that operate as a restraint on trade with the existing leagues in the market? Again, it happens in other countries because other countries have different laws, but under U.S. antitrust law, I, promotion and relegation is almost unworkable. I don't know how it happens. Right. It's one of the things that's very difficult to explain to people who say, well, it works in, in England and Germany and other ones, why can't it work here? And, well, there, there are reasons that have nothing to do with, 
you know, the supposed selfishness of MLS owners. I mean, mm, Congress, could pass a, Congress could pass a law that allows U.S. soccer to do all of that, and that would be fine, uh, and grant sure. an antitrust exemption to do that. But but that's not going to happen. <laughs> Congress isn't going to do that. Uh, no. And given and given the reality of, of law, I do not squint. There's a whole lot that I've sort of opened my eyes re- regarding the regulation of pro soccer with, within an antitrust law, and one, one of those is that. Yeah, so we come up with a very dim picture then. We've come up with some potential ways we can put a Band-Aid on this um, and settle this legal action, but it's hard to imagine that uh, as more people want it, 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 it's hard. If If everyone suddenly turned reasonable, then it could work. Otherwise, there would be lawsuits that would, that would have some merit um almost yeah. every direction if you told if you told the NASL you can never be division 1 then then uh that would be a sure legally actionable if you told MLS you're no longer the sole division 1 league then that would be legally actionable because it would devalue it would it would instantly devalue uh all these MLS Clubs and uh, certainly someone who just paid a hundred million or hundred fifty million dollar expansion fee um, to be part of the USA's only Division One league right. would say, "Hey, wait a minute." So, yeah, it, it's it seems like maybe uh, unless we could actually get everybody in a not just a legal mediation session. But just get them all to together to try to agree on something that it still wouldn't be lawsuit proof, but at least get everyone who wants to be running a league or in a league to agree on something and then agree at least not to sue each other. Right. That seems to be the only thing that could work. Um, good, good luck. Because because I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure how a judge would sort all this out. Uh, I think you decide the, the, the issues between the parties, and nothing, and there are there are no wholesale changes made, right? Uh, to, to these other issues that we're discussing. I mean, that's how it comes about, right? All righty. Well, so you and I are going to have a lot to talk about, even if no one. Even if the entire soccer journalism industry collapses and we have no one paying us to talk about it, we'll have plenty to talk about it. That's right. So plenty to talk about, no one to pay us to talk about it, but that's okay. Uh, all right. Well, Neil, thank you very much. I hope uh, listeners got a lot out of this. Um, I'm actually going to skip my usual um, post-interview um, you know, little feel that I do and just say uh, tune in next week to the Nets Ranting Soccer Dad and uh, thank you to this week's guest Neil Morris uh, Let me we, see. Accomplished, it, we accomplished it, everything and nothing that's what we did <laughs> that's right okay so I, I do have a quick closing uh, thought which is that we might do an extra podcast uh, before next week I, I've been publishing these on Wednesdays there might be another Ranting Soccer Dad on Friday it depends entirely on whether the person who says he will sit for an interview on Thursday actually sits for an interview on Thursday. 
not going to name who that person is. But if that interview comes to pass, there will be a Ranting Soccer Dad on Friday, in addition to NetSuite's regularly scheduled podcast. If not, just assume the interview fell through because it did. Or I had a heart attack or something. I don't know. I'm still on Spanish time. I'm still tired. We'll see what happens. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Bo Dewar with the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast. Good day. Good day.